Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I will be your host today. We are bringing you season four of Elixir Wizards, and we've decided this season's theme, taking into consideration much feedback from our audience who are brilliant and smart and very helpful. We've decided that this season's theme is going to be system and application architecture. So normally we would produce a short two to three minute trailer to give you a preview into the season theme and how we're thinking about it. But we thought that since this is season four and we just finished the first trilogy, we would stick to the old trope of starting a second trilogy by totally upending everything that made the original great. And so we're going to forgo doing a trailer and instead we're going to launch the season with a full on interview exploring this season's theme of system and application architecture with my esteemed co-host Eric Ostrich and the director of development at Smart Logic, Dan Ivovich. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Eric, how are you? Doing great. That was all just a really long intro for you too. Well, you know. Like our wisdom, it is epic. (laughs) So we've got a lot of feedback between the seasons and while doing season three from the folks that listen to the show, and we want to take it really seriously. And we want to continue providing like absolutely the highest quality Elixir podcast that we can possibly produce. So one of the pieces of feedback that we got a lot, and so we're going to be implementing some of this feedback into season four, is that we should talk a little bit more personally with the guests that make it onto the show. So Eric and I are on every episode of the show. Dan, you've been on several episodes. Dan, could you just kick off just like, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself? Like how you got to be the director of development operations at smart logic, how you came to letting Eric and I do this show. Sure. You know, smart logic. I joined coming up on nine years ago as a rails developer Mm -hmm. back when that was kind of smart logic's big focus, you know, over a couple of years working as a developer there, I established, I don't know, some amount of expertise and leadership around project management and making sure that things are being architected well. And that we're heading down a, a happy path of client satisfaction and through conversations with the owner, we kind of, like any good startup, invented a position that became the director of development operations. And like any good job description over the probably now seven and change years that I've been doing this job, it has evolved from you know making sure projects are running smoothly to now you know, managing the entire team and making sure that we have the right people in the right roles on the right contracts to you know, maintain that level of excellence that we expect from SmartLogic. Mm. And we recently made another new role for somebody at SmartLogic, isn't that right? We did. We we made a new role for Eric because Eric's been with this company just about as long as I have. Just about. Well, you know, Eric was an intern before I was a full-time hire. It's a, it's a hotly contested topic as far as who's been with the company longer. But yes, we just created a technical architect role for Eric, you know, and trying to, you know, as my role has kind of progressed more into that you know, full on team, people, career, leadership, you know, making sure that we're executing on contracts. I wanted to make sure that we had a focus on 
good design of systems, good professional development tracks for the employees, good you know decision making into should we adopt new frameworks, should we use certain libraries, should we open source things that we're working on. I mean, obviously we should, but I guess the question would be more, can we? And so those things have fed into Eric's new job description as a technical architect. Mm-hmm. Eric, you joined Smart Logic as an intern. Like, did you think that you were going to be here nine years later and promoted to the only technical architect at Smart Logic? I'm not really sure how long I thought it'd be here or whatever. I do remember. So I, I joined while I was in senior year of college as an intern. And then like two days after I graduated, I think I had a weekend from graduation to starting full time. And so that was how I started. The one thing I do remember was we were at a RailsConf and I was, I like found the Valve hiring thing or whatever. So like that was like nine years ago, Eric wanted to be working at Valve doing something. So I don't know. That oh, obviously didn't Valve pan out. The Valve manual. Is that what yeah. you're talking about? That is such yeah. a great document. Everyone should read that document. It's really good. Valve is a great company. So Eric, is it true that this was your only like full-time job ever? I had, I guess it was during the summer, it was a full-time like computer support position at the college so that but that was i don't know i don't know if that counts as like this is what i would consider my i guess i don't know well you're your, kind of a unicorn in that regard you like your whole career has been like at smart logic and, and just building stuff here and you've just been able to be heads down for so long and <laughs> like you got oss open source software like out the wazoo that i think we're going to talk about in this interview but it's kind of the opposite of dan because you came from like like corporate like building like super duper i mean i don't even like weapons of war <laughs> or like, no, I, mean, I, I was at a defense contractor but i was i was not doing that sort of that sort of work but yeah my you know out of college i got a job with a defense contractor in maryland so yeah i, I came from you know 100,000 plus employee company to smart logic which was you know probably maybe 10 at the time so you know definite difference for sure yeah, and, 10 and then I think quickly shrunk to six at that point because there's like waves of people that leave. Yeah, you know, I, I came in reason. I came in right at the kind of the tail end of one of those, you know, one of those kind of cohorts moving on to other things. So, yeah, but we're now at the point where Eric is the only direct report I have that I didn't hire. So, wow. And we're at what, 12 right now? Is that right? Well, nine on the product team, you know, so product designer and, and developer. And two and a half of support plus me. Mm-mm. Just so, hired a new engineer. He's doing. Yep. He's having a great first day. Recording this on his first day. I don't know if we want to. We probably don't want to get into that. But <laughs> we've had a season on, you know, getting jobs and hiring and training and all that. So let's move on. There's lots of people looking for jobs right now, and I keep seeing them on Twitter. So it is worth pointing out that Smart Logic is always hiring. Well, for those listening in the future, we're recording this during the the height of the 2020 pandemic. So that is why we're seeing a lot of people looking for new work. Yeah, I was actually struggling before we, I almost asked you guys like how timely you want to keep this episode and I think we'll just see how it goes because we can always edit it. So yeah, that, that was some of the interesting parts, like from knowing you guys pretty well and sort of your paths, like Eric, you've got a very kind of unconventional in tech kind of career path to be like at one place and be able to see like these technologies develop over time. It's really fascinating. And and I feel like I came at the best time, like in the last three years where like when I met you, 
like I immediately knew you were one of the most productive people I'd ever met. <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness, how did he get this way? And there's something about smart, like not only do we have a huge diversity of like different types of people that end up at smart logic, but where people go when they leave smart logic is really diverse too. Like, I don't know, like I think when I got here, people were leaving for Amazon and for Under Armour and for Facebook, someone just left. So yeah, smart logic, I think produces some pretty incredible talented engineers. And that's a really cool thing about working here. We have a question here about favorite underrated Elixir resources. And we want to know, I actually, Dan, I want to know what resource or like what happened that convinced you that smart logic should go all in on Elixir. I know it's not exactly a resource, but maybe it involves a resource or multiple resources. Sure. I mean, so yeah. you could argue that the resource for that was a former employee who you know was very passionate about functional programming and specifically Elixir. Mm. And we had a, a small project. You know, it was like this would probably take a person a couple weeks in Rails type of project. And you know, he was convinced he could do it just as fast and just as well in Elixir. Mm. And it was kind of like, you know what, like this is a pretty low risk as far as the company's concerned. You know, if it doesn't go well, we'll probably know halfway through the two weeks. Mm -hmm. And then so all we've lost is a week, you know, so that that was seemed kind of like a no brainer. You know, I think we did the project and it went well, and then we deployed it. And then we didn't have to touch it. And then still didn't have to touch it. And then still didn't have to touch it. And, you know, it was just like, okay, like, so we definitely got something that checks kind of that stable box, you know, and Eric and I being here, you know, as long as we have have seen several iterations of, you know, the right way to deploy a Rails app or the right way to do this, that, or the other thing with Rails. And I've seen all sorts of timeouts and memory issues and, and things like that that can happen. Mm. You know, and Elixir has gone through some similar growth around how to properly deploy. But, you know, I think we just saw at least at its core, you know, maybe the how has changed a bit, but the what you get when you deploy an Elixir app has been solid since day one. So I think, mm. you know, that's kind of like the first box to check. You know, we can't put something into production and have to be supporting it like crazy. So then from there, you know, then it was really about exploring the ecosystem, exploring the language, exploring the resources, looking at Phoenix and Ecto as our, you know, parallels to Rails and Active Record and say, okay, like, can we build what we need to build? And can we build it better, faster, in a state that's more maintainable? And for me, the aha moment was, you know, deep diving on Ecto and seeing change sets and thinking about all of the callbacks and validations and you know attributes and things that I've added to Rails models over the years to make it work the way I want it to work and how painful that can be to support, you know, even a few months later and seeing the patterns in Ecto as just a path where, you know, so much of what we do is data driven and everything about functional programming is based on the data flowing and that really, that cemented it for me, you know, 100% that interacting with the database and, and building a solid app with Ecto was what I wanted to do. And so this was what, like 2016, 2017, early 2017, maybe? Yeah, something in that ballpark. Tail end of 2015, because I think I'd just moved. Yeah, 2015. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Whoa. I mean, for, for that for that first app probably was about yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah. Because I got, I got there in 2017 and it was like, just in full swing, I feel like. Yeah, it wasn't until about 2017 that it was, you know, nine out of 10 new apps were Elixir. So, it was, you know, this, this was a year and a half before that point where we were just kind of trying it out. And I think we did one other project in that time frame, And then, you know, then after that, it just became, okay, unless there's a compelling reason to not mostly like client requests because of their own, you know, internal skill set. 
to just keep pushing Elixir. And do you remember like any specific resources that helped you pick it up when you were first learning? Like the programming Elixir, programming Phoenix books, I worked through, you know, probably 75% of one and 50% of the other. Right. You know, I tend to be a, just kind of immerse yourself in something. I really tried to like read the book cover to cover and do all the exercises. And, you know, I was like, oh, okay, you know, I want to learn this the, the right way with all the fundamentals because my exposure to Ruby and Rails was very, like a lot of Rails developers was like, you learn Rails and you don't really know where the lines are between Rails and Ruby itself. And I really wanted to try to avoid that. Turns out that's way less of a problem because Phoenix is super lightweight and mostly mm. just like glues things together. But yeah. yeah, so that was kind of my approach. And then, you know, then it's just been kind of the, the typical way that I think a lot of people learn stuff, you know, try it out, rebuild something that you've built yourself. You know, I have a little kind of like side projects I've done in Rails and in Go. And, you know, so it's like try those in Elixir. Okay, great. You know, and then my position at Smart Logic has made it where a lot of my Elixir learning is, you know, reading other people's Elixir code as well, you know, so pull requests and pull request reviews and, and then getting in there and kind of helping, you know, learn by doing. Eric, what about you? Do you have, and I want to follow up on this question with both of you, but do you have a favorite like Elixir resource that helped you when you were first picking up? And also maybe just talk a little bit about that time, if you remember it and how the adoption cycle went at Smart Logic since it was before I was here. So we had that small project and then like four months later, I want to say we had another one that kicked up that we started doing and like that was my first big project at that point. And yeah, we were planning on doing all these cool things and whatnot. And then like, I think we were going to try out Absinthe and all that fun stuff. And then I was like, all right, this is all too much new stuff. So then we, we went back to the thing I knew of just like standard rest stuff because it was like just too much at once. So we did that. And then I think that project went for, I don't know, six months maybe. And did as some startups do as it fizzled out. And then we had a little while later, I think was our next big one towards the beginning of 2017, maybe was our next big one. I joined in March of 2017 and there was at least a couple of like projects Yeah, at that point. Because I, I mean, I was working on Elixir, not on day one, but pretty early. Yeah. So anyways, whenever we had, there was like kind of two big projects that I was involved in that kind of kicked off my Elixir stuff. And then during the summer, I think of 2017, I like had some PD time. So I just like pulled down Ranch and Ranch is the TCP acceptor library. So I, I set that up and kind of played around with letting it be like a chat socket type of thing for Telnet. As everyone may or may not know at this point, if you're listening to this, I write MUD software. <laughs> so that's how that started. It was just like an, an echo server that just like spit back what you said, and then it turned into a chat server and then kind of just kept morphing until it became XVenture. And so a lot of a lot of my learning came from doing a, a side project and like going, just being like, okay, I finished my last thing that I wanted to do. I want to do this new thing scroll through the like what's something i've heard of that i've never used before like one weekend i just was like i've never done ets so let's try ets <laughs> and whatever the next thing i was working on i i just like used ets and made it work mm. i think we all and this is probably an engineer like creative type thing where people have to learn by doing right like you have to come up with some sort of project or portfolio piece to work on i wanted to follow up with this resource question because we're talking about elixir resources have you read any good books on architecture? 
Because Eric, you read the book about like architecting apps with OTP, right? Yeah, the one that I read was Designing for Scalability with Erlang OTP. Right. That was a pretty good book that kind of helped like the initial foundation of my my like programming stuff. I haven't really read too many other Elixir books recently. I know there's architecture books yeah. like, more broadly. Yeah. There's a few if you're interested in like web APIs of the restful nature there's a few good books that one of the co-organizers of RestFest, which i'm actually wearing the shirt right now no one else can see but my co-host can so i'm a core organizer for that that i just kind of i don't know got accepted into but one of the main organizers who started it all mike amundsen has a lot of books at o'reilly all about http stuff and i definitely i mean pretty much anyone that he's written should be good but there's a pretty good one about designing APIs that he did that I that I cannot remember the name, but I will make sure we have a link for. Mm. Dan, what about you? Do you have any favorite books or resources just on architecture more generally? I do not. I just started reading Bruce Tate's book on, it's called Designing Elixir Systems with ODB, I think. And that's yeah, been I, pretty- I have a healthy stack of, I wish I had time to read <laughs> books in, in this vein. Yeah, I'm, You're I'm, pretty busy, Dan. Yeah, I mean, I think from an architecture standpoint, I just have a lot of lessons learned from, you know, nine years of working on every, basically every project Smart Logic has ever worked on, I've been involved in in some way. Yeah. Well, so, so let's, let's dive into the, like, the meat, the meaty questions here about architecture, design. Like, Dan, do you have a preferred style of design, domain-driven design, test-driven design, behavior? What is PDD? I don't even know that paper-driven design. That's, that's what I do. PowerPoint-driven design. <laughs> <Not> PowerPoint. <laughs> PowerPoint-driven design, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we like to use TDD. We've definitely experimented with BDD, more style approaches, you know, like your, your cucumber style approach, describe a behavior, you know, write a test that implements that behavior, make that test pass. You know, I, I think there's a lot of misdirection that gets kind of added in there. And I've seen that lead projects kind of astray. So I would, mm-hmm. I generally shy away from that. You know, <laughs> I, I believe... I yeah, I believe you have a lot of opinions on specifically cucumber justice. <laughs> I think all three of us have a lot of opinions on I, cucumber. Yeah, I mean, I think that let's besmirch cucumber's good name. I think it's time. Someone needs to do it. Someone just needs to say it. Why would you ever do this to yourself? It's so bad. I need someone to come out of the woodwork and defend cucumber. If you're listening to this and you think cucumber is worthwhile over like just our spec and capybara, I want to hear it. We'll let, we'll let you record a special episode with justice defending cucumber but you should go into it dan like like because you i think started moving away from cucumber before i started complaining about it well i i I think cucumber's strength is also its big fault right it's infinitely configurable because you take plain english language and you turn it into implementation and you can do that in ways that are effective and you can do that in ways that are really horrible and so you can really make a mess for yourself. And I have seen us write some cucumber that's reasonable and I've seen us write stuff that's horrible. And I think it leads you into a false sense of, oh, I can get a lot of reuse, right? Every time I want a user to do something, I'll just reuse this statement. Yeah. And then you find the case where that statement doesn't quite apply or the English isn't quite what you want it to be. And then so you parameterize it and now you've complicated everything and you have to go back and change it everywhere. Mm. And so I think, the people who seem to like cucumber, I think, and I don't know because I've been kind of disconnected from this community for a while, you know, they take the approach of don't reuse anything. Every cucumber file you write is a clean slate and its implementation is unique to that file. And so I think if you're going to do that, then it's like, why not just write the tests? And I think if you have 
a stakeholder or a product owner or somebody who can collaborate with you on the cucumber files and you can say, okay, this is our spec. And if the, if we write tests that implement the true meaning, the, you know, the, the essence of what this English statement says, then we will build the right behavior. You know, that is probably possible, but I think it is very These difficult. People must exist somewhere. Well, I, I think it, it takes a lot of discipline and it takes a very involved product owner. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a consultancy and you're collaborating with, a, you know, we talk to our product owners, you know, Every, every day. day, but that's still probably not enough bandwidth to really use Cucumber to that extent, to use it right in that way. And then I think the other thing that happens with Cucumber is that you're testing from as outside of the system as possible, which is fantastic, but it's slow and you can write way too much Cucumber that's testing things that are not truly relevant to the behavior of your system. Yes, they are the behaviors your system has, but are they really like, are they core behaviors? Is that right. really what you want to be testing? And so you get this bloat of this giant test suite that no one wants to run. And that when you do want to fix something or make a change, you now have to make a change in so many places. Mm. And so I think that's where the long-term maintenance of a giant Cucumber suite is is I think outweighs really any of its benefits if you're doing good, you know, from my opinion, if you can replace it with a good mix of healthy integration yeah. tests, a good mix of true good unit tests, you know, make sure your components work correctly, then make sure they integrate com- correctly. And then yes, do a full end to end test on like the most critical business cases for your application so that you can ensure from a regression standpoint that you don't break checkout or sign up or your ability to make money, like do those things. But, but do them in Capybara. You know, but don't us. don't try to make sure that your error messages text is correct and is formatted correctly or is translating correctly at the cucumber level. Yeah. We should do season four video, and I'll tell you why. Because you could clip out just Dan's little rant right there, and you could repost it as like a three-minute video that's like Dan Ivovich destroys behavior-driven design. And I would totally click that every single time. But you I do also like, see both Justice and I at the same time, mostly just like shaking, like nodding and, <laughs> and like agreeing with everything. So. so yeah, definitely we should do video. If our marketing department listens to that, then you, you know my opinion, Rose. <laughs> what style of design do you prefer? So I want to talk a little bit more about design because I want Eric to define for me domain-driven design. Like, I don't know what it is. Tell me what it is. I'm not sure I fully understand either. I think it's, we had someone at, at Lone Star. There was someone who did a presentation that kind of included it. I think he said he was part of the domain-driven design ecosystem. I think it's sort of similar to BDD, but different nouns or something. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. <laughs> I just know it's a thing, so we included it in our in our script. I Okay, so... Okay, well, I have to say, I think we're, we're three people who all seem to prefer test driven design you know, with, with maybe a little PowerPoint driven just at the onset to make sure you understand stuff. Like I think flow diagrams are important, right? To understanding what it is you're going to build. So, okay. For what it's worth, I think that's the approach that the three of us take. So I thought that domain driven design was like, I thought Phoenix is a framework that encourages domain driven design because you're creating contexts, right? And contexts are like your, your application business logic is organized in such a way that it makes sense in context of the domain, right? Like the business logic domain. So I, that's what I thought DDD was. And this is so funny because someone's going to come out of the woodwork and be like, this is what domain driven design is, you idiots. And, but well, <laughs> I, I think you're right. You know, so they're not the mutually exclusive. Core, core domain, you know, 
complex designs on a model, right? And that's, I think we, we get there, right? And if you go through the design process, we usually go through as far as, you know, talking about the data, talking about the nouns, talking about the flows, right. you know, describing the behaviors, like these things fall out of it. Right. And I think part of the reason why these terms are all difficult is because they overlap. Right. You know, so, so is anyone doing one thing? No, you know, they may say they are, but they're probably doing some mix of all of these things, right. or it's just that each one of these is a mix of all the other things, because yeah. ultimately we're ending in the same place, which is, I want to know what kind of code I should write. You know, whether that's based on a domain, yeah. whether that's based on a PowerPoint, whether that's based on a giant cucumber file or based on a failing test, you know, I think you're ultimately trying to say, how do I write code that I can ensure is correct? What is RDD, Eric? REPL driven design. Oh, I do that. <laughs> I do REPL driven design for sure. I do paper driven design. Like I write a lot of things down and then I'm just like, okay, that's my checklist. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then test-driven design. I feel like TDD is like the best practice that people like need to learn. Everything else is like a fancy word for something else. But that's just me. When starting on a new project, what do you design first? Like when we get a new client, how do you guys think about deconstructing like whatever the idea is in their head and how, and like Dan, especially for you, because you spent a lot of time in like early client product meetings. How do you think about starting or breaking down a problem at the project level? Yeah, I mean... It's about understanding what we're trying to accomplish and then decomposing that into, you know, what, what do I think are the big modules, right? So I, I like to start on a whiteboard and just kind of draw things out. Someone will say, oh, you know, I want a user. So it's like, okay, well, you write user on the board, right? And then you try to come up with a better name than user because user is horrible, right? No one wants to be called a user. You know, so it's like, okay, well, I want the player or the accountant or the, you know, they, these people have like real real names, real roles within society. And, and we yeah. want to capture that. But at the database level, they're always a user. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So a user you know, with a type column. So you start there and then you say, okay, so what is, what is this person going to do? Right. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's like, okay, well, they're going to, they're going to sign up. They're going to add credit card details. It's like, okay, so you're, you're starting to build up the pieces, the, you know, maybe the domains, right. Of what concepts, what nouns is this system going to entail? And, and then you talk about flows. Okay. So I'm going to move from, you know, part A to part B to part C. And, and what is it that I need to do there? What validates that I'm allowed to do that? Yeah. You're starting at the, at like the data level. I mean, I, I tend to think about things at the data level, right? Like somebody, a client says something and I'm immediately thinking about database tables, you know, right. for for better or for worse, right? Yeah, that's that's a... how I break down a problem is like, okay, where, what am I going to store where? How are these pieces going to relate? And then I kind of, maybe, you know, maybe that's pretty low level to be thinking about, but I think it informs, you know, so much about, you know, how you're going to make the system. And I, and I think making your data model match reality makes the system so much easier to maintain and so much easier for a developer to understand. Because right. if I sit down and I explain to you the real nouns of a process, and then you look at the code and none of them match, and everything's like normalized down to the point where you need like eight tables just to figure out one thing, you know, then it's going to be so difficult for somebody to, to ramp up onto something or even for myself to support it three months from now. Right. You know, all legacy code is code that hasn't been looked at in three months, regardless of whether you wrote it or not. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I just try to I try to make reality mirror, you know, in the code as much as possible. And so that's where I think maybe that's where that approach comes from. Eric, do you have a different take? Because you were nodding when he was talking about sort of starting with at the data level. And do you have a different take on that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of have similar It's probably also because we've worked for like nine years together. So, right. <laughs> I think I like to have a similar approach. 
I feel like most of the time when we start new projects, we have some big document that the client has written out, like, this is what I want the system to do. And then we have to try and break that down into like topics or stories, epics, whatever nouns you want to use. I I think we we came up with a bunch of, I already forgotten them, Dan, (laughs) but but like to find our nouns and like, so we we just make a list of things in the correct order of like, we'll bootstrap Phoenix, we'll do authentication, we'll make an admin panel, we'll do this, 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 this. And so like, that's how I like to kind of like create the backlog of stuff you will do in the order that you'll do it based on that big document that the client has written out. Yeah. So this is so interesting that you both answered this question this way. Because, you know, you ask, the question is, when starting a new project, what do you design first, right? And so it's interesting because you both took it as like given a client with like an idea of what they want, you know, like where do they go? But like right now, I've, I've got a situation where I've got a client with a bunch of budget, but it, they don't really know what they're going to use it for. You know what I mean? And so then the question is a little bit more, it's even like you're calling it low level, Dan. I was thinking like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty low level. That's like engineering level design, like designing the solution or like, what are you going to build is even more of like a, I don't know, a product manager problem maybe. And they're, I think they're asking themselves about like the value. Yeah, well, I mean, you <laughs> explain something to me and I'll define some code that like accomplishes yeah. it. Right. Yeah. Like, and that is why I'm a consultant and not a like product company. Right. right. Uh, defining product is hard. Like mm-hmm. I, like yeah. that is, Product road mapping and you know what's a good market fit and all those things. Those are hard, challenging problems. And I think there is a lot of collaboration that goes on between like technology and that process. Yeah. And I think Smart Logic is great in the sense of we've really tried to optimize for that and we involve the developers early on. And mm-hmm. everyone needs to be, you know, understand the business case and be on that same page because they do, they inform each other. What is technically possible? And also what is the purpose of this so that I can write it the right way? Mm-hmm. But defining a product from nothing, that's challenging. Yeah. I think if we're talking to like an Elixir developer and the question is like, how do I start designing this project? What you guys are saying is is sort of technically correct. Like, you know what the problem is already at this point. The question is, how do you define that into ones and zeros? You know, at the database level, data level, thinking about the information architecture. Okay, cool. What other pre-coding planning? Like, we don't really whiteboard as much as I think some people do. I don't know. I'm on paper a lot. Are you guys on paper a lot? What do you use to, like, get the architecture into some sort of Yeah, I I, I draw on paper a lot. I like to whiteboard, you know, whatever's available, you know, whether it's a whiteboard or a sketch or, you know, an iPad with a pencil, like, you know, I I think the important part is, is drawing it out, right? Being able to freeform, put something onto a page that is very unstructured, right? I think that's what's great about drawing is it's completely unstructured. You know, if you open up a terminal or you open up a, a Vim buffer, right, you're forced into characters in order, line by line. And yeah. you have to, if you want to create unstructured things, you need to, you know, add white space, which is, you know, still very constraining. And you're going to spend most of your time getting the white space to align correctly. Right, right. So I think it's it's about starting with something that has as few boundaries on it as possible. Yeah, yeah. It's it's about imposing boundaries. Do, Eric, do you have any like tools that you use for pre-coding planning? So I also use just a blank printer paper because <laughs> since I'm I was fully remote before current day. <laughs> so I, I just generally didn't have the opportunity to whiteboard with everyone else in the office. So I would, I sort of started getting into like writing stuff out on a, a sheet. And I think I've taken a picture and sent it to Dan before that. And the other thing I like to do is I'm on Linux. So this it's called mouse pad, but it's just a like notes 
.exe type of thing or notepad.exe in Linux and just like typing stuff out in like a bullet point list of like I mm. like this then this then this then this so kind of like a to-do list of of like everything that I could maybe want to do and like just think about all the little weird edge cases and whatnot so I kind of have a pretty good idea as to like what this thing will be and then like send it to someone else send it to Dan or you or whoever and just be like what do you think of this like let's talk through it yeah like what am I missing yeah type of thing I also design by checklist <laughs> Let's talk about APIs because, you know, we talked about the data layer a little bit. We're thinking about things in terms of, I think, the database and the relations on the database is really what we were, we meant. The, the API is sort of a level above that. I mean, there's logic. There are, you know, accessible APIs like online. First of all, what does it mean? Like, how broad is the name API? Like, what all does API encompass for you guys? Everything. <laughs> Everything's an API. <laughs> I think at, at this point, when you say API, you're specifically referring to an HTTP API. Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely co-opted the, the name at this point. So whether you're doing whatever specific style you're doing, it's just it's over the HTTP protocol. If mm -hmm. it's REST or GraphQL or yeah, for the for the whatever. nature of the work we do, that's like you know covers basically all the cases. You know, if we were if we were making like low level libraries for iPhones or you know something like that, you know, then maybe we'd consider that the API of our SDK. But when we say API, we really mean you know something generally something HTTP based. If it's on the web, it's an API. If it's native, it's an SDK. <laughs> sure, I'm sure someone will fight you on that, just like they'll fight you on Cucumber. Oh man, I, the best fight is. What's the difference between coding and programming? Well, just we're starting season four with controversy. It sounds like I don't know <laughs> tabs or spaces. No, <laughs> only spaces because. And why should correct. you fire everyone who uses Emacs? Yeah, <laughs> no. also VS Code. I used to be a big Emacs user. I'm not if anymore. You, if you I use something that can be described as an IDE, you're fired. <laughs> that is also not true. But we're the only three people I think who still use Vim. So no, Smart Logic. We use Vim. That's what John Carlo told me when I started. <laughs> and now I tell everybody and they're all like, no, we're going to use this. Like, I don't know. This, it's like a cartoon game or something. It's got like comic sans and like bright colors. I don't know what you're talking about. VS code. That's that's all right. That's me. <laughs> like it's a sandbox. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm I'm gonna trigger some like VS Code users in our audience. I'm sorry. So APIs, like, we, what do we do? We we use GraphQL. We use REST. We use SOAP. I exclusively design SOAP. What is what can do? Can do either of you guys actually know what SOAP APIs are? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Could you enlighten a younger developer? It's like a very XML-y RPC type of thing. <laughs> my understanding. Simple XML. object access protocol. Yeah, it's a bunch of very strict XML to invoke functions on a remote server. I want to know, do you guys agree on what the word REST stands for? Representational state transfer. Is yeah, what it's I mean, supposed to okay. for. Yeah, no, sure. I had that sounds Google, good. When I Googled it. Sounds accurate. And I always thought it was something like resource related. You know, I thought that's what REST was all about. It is. So it's yeah. a representation of a resource. Yeah. Maybe since REST is much more important, obviously, <laughs> we could do a definition of like, first of all, for a number of years, REST API design was like really in vogue thing to talk about. I think we're past that point because everybody just like internalized it. Did that happen or am I imagining that? I mean, I think it happened and then everyone got upset with it because all they did was write 
CRUD APIs, and that's relatively a bad pattern. And so, like, no one put thought into APIs. And I mean, I early on, I was definitely a part of that. And why is CRUD a bad pattern for APIs? So, I mean, it's just like for REST, you should be thinking about state transitions of your resources. So, like, if I have an order, like, what actions can I do on that order to like change it into different states? And so, like, that's that's like if you read the are you telling me the actions aren't index, new, create, update, delete? Correct. The actions. Yeah. One of the first times I went to RestFest, Mike Amundsen said a pretty good line. It's like, I'm totally going to forget the actual quote at this point, but it, it somehow boiled down to like, don't show me your like database because that's like the underpants of your application. Like, I don't want to see it. <laughs> so like your API does not have to equal exactly what tables you have. It's not to say that if it does, it's bad. It's like you just can put extra thought into it and like, you don't have to just directly export your database through like crud stuff. And there's like stuff where it's like, I think it's called Hasura, I think is what it is, where you can just put a GraphQL API on top of your database. And it's just like, I just sit there and go like, no, like that's like bad. <laughs> but why is it bad? Like, I don't it's know. Be, like, like if, if you have a, a good API, it's intentionally designed. Uh, so like, if you just plop out your database to the front end, then it's it's like it could be better, I guess, is more the like if you intentionally designed it to be what you need it to be, then you should hopefully have better resources and then less queries, blah, 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 whatever. Like, so you unless your intention is just like straight up access to a database. Yeah. Right. Right. But I mean, <laughs> like, the, and the point being, if you couple your API to your database, then you change your database you're now, you can leave your API the same, but now they don't mirror. So any benefit you had of them mirroring from, you know, oh, I can keep this all in my head, you've like then lost. Or you're then going to break your API because you've changed your database. You know, and I think that's one of the things that like the whole Phoenix contexts, you know, change, I think was so great and really, you know, helped push people in that direction of, you know, think about, think about what API you want to have. And here, I mean, a programming API, you know, between your controllers and your data model. You know, what do you want to, to layer in there? And so, you know, you'll see in, you know, apps will we'll create like an accounts context that handles the management of users. And if we decide to change the user's table or anything about how we manage users, we can keep that account, the interface of that accounts context exactly the same. And the controllers and the, the APIs that our mobile apps are calling can stay exactly the same. And you can replace behavior and update behavior. You can even move things off the server and access them through another API if you wanted to. And no one outside of your context would be any of the wiser. And so that lets you create that modularity that lets you move things around and and also test things in isolation. I mean, that's where I think Phoenix Context and, and Elixir has pushed us in, in positive directions from a testing standpoint, because you can say, okay, this is my boundary. And all I care about is the shape of the data in and the shape of the data out. And I can, I can test that. And whether I have a running web process or not is irrelevant. Whether I have an actual database or not is irrelevant, right? Mm-hmm. We can just test the manipulation of this data and ensure that it's behaving correctly. And then when you pull the pieces together, you can be, you know, a high level of confidence that it's going to work. Hmm. I'm wondering how much more time we should spend on this, like HTTP stuff. I guess we have to mention GraphQL. So talk about GraphQL. Sure. It's mentioned. Let's move on. <laughs> Eric, anything to add there? Nope. 
Okay. <laughs> okay. Obviously, smart logic is not bullish on GraphQL. Yeah, let's just let's go on. I, I'm curious, how is your thinking about designing an application architecture evolved, especially like over the last few years since we've picked up Elixir as like the main thing that we do? How has your thought process around the architecting, you know, from beginning to, you know, an ongoing iteration process? How has that changed? Dan? You know, I, I think it is extremely easy and extremely dangerous to over-architect a system. And if you try to plan for every contingency, every, well, what if, you know, you'll build a bunch of things that never are used or never happen or you never encounter. I remember long ago people saying like, oh, you know, like if you if you spend all your time making your application so it scales, you'll never get enough users that it actually needs to scale. Right. Right. And so it's about like prioritizing things. And I think from my standpoint, like design a system that you can iterate on is mm -hmm. like the number one thing because you will iterate on it. You're going to iterate on the product. You know, like most projects we start, you know, we'll spec out two to three months worth of work. Where we end up is different because things change. The world changes. I mean, when everything is going on right now, the world changes, right? Priorities are going to shift. And it is important that you architect an application such that you can iterate your code to match the changing of reality. And I think that's where Elixir and Phoenix have really made me feel good about the work that we're doing because of its functional nature, because of the way we're doing low-level tests. It feels like we're building systems that can evolve with the changing needs. And, and we found that for the applications that are now three or four years old, when we need to make a change to them, you know, we can drop into the module that we need to add some behavior to, we can add the behavior to it, we can test it, and then we can integrate it in without a giant re-architecture. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is is important. So, you know, design for the future, but don't try to guess what it's going to be. Eric, I'm curious your response to this question, because building X Venture, you've gotten to really dive into having code running on multiple nodes, the sort of sweet spot for developing Elixir applications. What have you learned? I think like there's definitely, I feel like the biggest thing that I've learned that's in like my design process that's changed has just been like, I don't know what the best way to describe it. It's of like just having Elixir sync in enough to like not try to make a Rails app that is Elixir or I happen to be making a Ruby Elixir app <laughs> type of thing. What do you mean by that? Where like the writing style that you're doing is still of like, I came from Ruby, so I might be writing an Elixir application that you could almost just like copy paste into Ruby type of thing. Right. And just make it assume it's like functional Ruby or whatever. Mm -hmm. So like having stuff seep in enough has just been kind of the the big change where like X Venture definitely feels like a Rails app or, or something similar. I was going to say that, well, it's more of just a comment that like Elixir benefits from this weird asymmetry that Ruby doesn't benefit from where like if you bring OOP to Elixir world, it makes your Elixir code worse. But if you bring functional thinking to your Rails applications, it'll make your Rails applications better. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like learning Elixir does seem to be a, f or I mean, really more functional programming. Learning functional programming seems to be like a force multiplier in your ability to architect a good system. Sorry, go on. Let's well, see. I was just going to say, like, the more variety of experience you have, the more different areas of thought you can pull on. I think, you know, those are all tools to building something. And so introducing you something you're a better new. developer for like learning object oriented programming? Sure. Hmm. I want you know, 
<laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't have the perspective of learning programming from a functional first paradigm, right? Like I, I did not learn it that way, yeah. but I think like, you know, if you're trying to explain programming to somebody, like people can relate to objects, you know, like objects that have methods on them, people can understand that, you know, they understand what a car is. They understand that if you tell a car to lock its doors, that something about that object will change. Right. Mm -hmm. They don't think about it as like lock is a function. And when you put your car into the lock function, you get back a different car that is now locked. Ah, see, when you call it a function, no. But if you call it a process, people might transformation. You know I mean? a tra oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And for someone who knows nothing about any of this. You what know, are you talking about? Now, now you have a bunch of other vocabulary you have to define. Right. Well, I just wonder if like this is like a confirmation bias thing where because we all learned OOP first, we're like, yeah, it was good that we learned OOP. But like when you think about like, does OOP actually contain some kind of isomorphism about the real world? Or is it like an unnecessary layer of abstraction between the actual isomorphism, which is that the universe is made up of processes, right? And things like a human being isn't an object. A human being is a process and the process begins and it, and it ends. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, you, you can come up with whatever set of nouns you want to describe anything. Right. Like, but the point I'm trying to make is not learning one way or the other is better. My point mm -hmm. is that learning lots of ways is probably going to help you. This is a fascinating philosophical question. Okay. We don't have a lot more time, but I want to get into microservices because there's a hot take here somewhere. I feel like 2020 is a year where we destroy all our angels, you know, what are they called? Or kill our darlings, kill our baby. But you know, you know what I'm saying? Like where we like take micro microservices, single page applications, you know, soap, nobody cares about, but rest maybe, you know, like this could be the year that we just destroy all the things that we love in software engineering and are reborn with things that we like, like functional programming. Do you have a point there or are you just excited? Microservices. Talk about them. <laughs> is this yeah, the year I, that we get to kill microservices? I mean, it depends on what you mean by microservices. You know, any you can do too much of anything, right? You can have too big of a monolith. You can have too many microservices. You can use Kubernetes before you should. You can abuse Heroku, right? You can have so many VPSs that are custom configured that now you have a nightmare, right? Like you, you can make anything into a maintenance nightmare. How many people do you think you should have on your staff before you consider engineering like a microservices architecture into your product? Why is that the metric you're going to use to make that determination? Because I think that you would, I think that you need a DevOps person to run a microservices architecture. Like, I don't really think that you can, like one person can like build like a whole product on a microservices architecture. Now there might be like a genius out there, like a prodigy type of human being who's like capable of that. I definitely tried going that route for Grapevine. I had three or four projects going at once that were all kind of using WebSockets to keep in sync. And it was working, but it was definitely way too much for one person to be worth it. So then that's when I collapsed back to a monolith application. And that was definitely the better choice, I think. Do you think you would have had a better architecture if you had architected it as a monolith from the ground up? I don't know. So like the way that that started was gossip was born and then it was like purely chat and like you would register your game and like that's how it worked. And then like Grapevine came along and was like a listing Steam type site that like let you look into the gossip network. So I don't I don't regret the choice to start that way. I had a lot of fun doing some kind of websockety real time stuff. So like I think as far as as the 
was it worth it because I enjoyed what I was doing because it was a hobby project. <laughs> I totally thought it was it was worth it. But like if this was a client project, what would I have done? I probably just would have added turned gossip into a listing site <laughs> and just kept it a single monolith mm-hmm. application. Yeah, I mean I, I think that any given code base can't like be bigger than the team can manage, right? And mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. if you have a team that can take on your monolith and, and do what needs to be done in it, then great. But then in the same sense, a, a small team can't necessarily manage a whole bunch of different applications all at the same time and, and expect to orchestrate them correctly. And so, you know, but then does that mean that it needs to be a microservice with some sort of protocol between them that, you, that is on the network? Not necessarily, right? Like you could break out a team that's just working on something where the API is an SDK and it's being pulled in as a hex package or as a gem mm-hmm. and you can iterate on that. And I think what's important there is the same thing that would be important as if it was over the network is that you agree on an API, uh, you know, you agree on, on how these two things are going to communicate. And then the impl- you, you then don't need to keep the implementation of that in your brain when you're working on it. You just need to keep the API in your brain so that right. you know how to interact with it. Right. And so, so drawing those segments between components as your team grows, as your product grows, you know, I think is important, you know, but is RESTful microservices or GraphQL microservices the solution? Maybe, you know, is making it a hex package and pulling it in the solution? Maybe. Maybe, yeah. You know, and I, and I think the things that matter there are, Constraints of your environment, constraints of how you want to be able to deploy it, constraints of your staff expertise, you know, and then also just the constraints of legacy. And I think maybe one of the reasons this is such a hot topic on like the Elixir community of like, oh, like don't do microservices is because like we have great ability to put a bunch of apps together in an umbrella, right? Mm-hmm. Or or have them run as like in the, the nerves like poncho style or just be like, hey, I have a folder full of code. I'm just going to drop it into this project. And now it is a module that I can access from any of my controllers. Right. You know, like it's convention then on, on how you want to segment things out. Yeah. I guess there's also a matter of definitions here, which is like, I don't consider like a single page application with like a separate API. Like those are both one applications talking over the network to another. I don't think that's a microservice architecture. You know what I mean? If that single page application is the only consumer, then no, it's it's barely an API, right? It's just two right. components of the system who talk a certain way. And so then the question is like, at what point do you end up in microservice? Like when I think of my, I guess maybe I'm kind of, I don't know if I'm a purist. I don't know what the purist definition of microservice would be, but I assume that a pure definition of microservices would be like, you know, something over the network that provides just one piece of responsibility. And that's how the entire system is architected, right? So like if we were to take, a common like a blog application and turn it into a microservice architecture it would have like a user service and it would have like a content management service and it would have like a i don't know a cache service all spun up and like in that case right like it would just make way more sense to make that <laughs> one application if you're doing it in elixir that's why i'm like can we kill microservices i know that we can't really because there are situations like what you're talking about where you would need to have things accessing one another over the network we want to wrap up with some kind of conversation just about like where we think the future is going to like you know we we glided right past graphql maybe that's not in the future for us like what are we hoping for what are we expecting from the future of our applications and and from architecting systems dan do you want to talk about like what we're hoping for or what you think we can expect to see you know i i'm excited about the community continuing to just 
not assume that the way we've been doing things is the right way to do things, you know, and, and I try to not bog myself down in buzzwords and dogma, you know, and, and look for what are the lessons we can learn from the things that are going on. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like Elixir has been an, a, a shining example of that in the sense of, you know, oh, hey, it's got a Ruby inspired syntax because we like the way Ruby looks, you know, but it takes advantage of the multi-process actor model of Erlang, right? And so it's like, okay, so like we've taken things that we like about, you know, existing pieces and pulled them together in a, in a unique and interesting way, you know, and Phoenix, you know, looked a lot like Rails when it was early on and now it looks kind of different, right? But it's still kind of inspired by it, but it brings its own approaches to things. And so I think my my hope for the future, my hope for what SmartLogic continues to do with these technologies is to, you know, evolve our usage informed by experience and continue to pick tools that are flexible enough to adapt to like the changing needs of our projects. You know, similar to what I was saying about, you know, designing a system, you know, over-engineering a system and then trying to implement it or preparing for the future that never comes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, from my standpoint, it's more about picking tools that you can adapt with. And that's why I enjoy Elixir. That's why I enjoy the things we've done with, you know, the ways we've decided to use Docker or not use Docker, the way we've used Heroku or not use Heroku, the way that we've tried different CI systems, you know, letting ourselves pick the best tool at the time, but trying to ensure that we're not too locked into any one approach. Mm-hmm. Eric, do you have anything to add? Any any aspirations? Do you think we're ever going to have codeless development? I hope not. <laughs> What's it? Drag and drop coding? Is that? Yeah, you want a wizard? You want a wizard? <laughs> no. no, okay. No, I don't. No, but seriously, what are you what are you hoping for? What do you expect to see? I think I expect to see more, and also hope for more like real time stuff. So like web sockets and Phoenix Live View and all that fun stuff. I've had a blast doing a bunch of the weird web socket stuff I've done all my projects and and kind of long-lived tcp connections through telnet whatever i think there's a lot of stuff you can do with web sockets that like most of our clients would i'm sure would love a real-time site but it's like i don't know making that work well and and like seeing where that heads i think will be pretty cool awesome yeah and then maybe think of something else too that i think is, is a benefit to the elixir community and that's the nerves project you know, because that's just, it's a whole nother set of constraints. It's a whole nother set of things to keep in mind. And that's informing things in Elixir and Elixir is informing things there. And developers who are working in both communities are, they're learning things, they're sharing things. They're, you know, this world of, of web development has just been continually pushing to not necessarily compare, care about resource constraints because resources are cheap. You know, and then you take the nerves community and they're extremely resource constrained and they're in environments where there are not unlimited resources, there's not unlimited bandwidth. And so, you know, when I, when I talk about the diversity of a community, the diversity of teams, the diversity of a language, those are the things that attract me to the Elixir community because there is that diversity that's informing how this is being made. You know, Rails is great at building apps that are a lot like Basecamp because that's what Rails was built to do. Mm-hmm. And it's great at it. And I built a lot of things that I still hold dear to my heart in Rails. And I can still do a lot of things really fast in Rails if it aligns with those needs. What I like about Elixir and the community is that the alignment to needs seems more broad, or at least it seems like a set of tools that I can use to meet a more wide variety of needs. And 
you know, at the level that we're at, at the types of work that we're doing, at, at what we hope to achieve as a company, like a bunch of really good, solid tools is way more important than, you know, one really fancy device that works, you know, some of the time. Mm. Well said, Dan. Well, I would say, do you have any more plugs or asks for the audience? Any final shameless self-promotion, Dan, before we let you go? Yeah, I'm not like super up on the socials. I mean, I'm Dan Ivovich in most places. If you want to like check me out, my blog is pretty stagnant. You know, I, I'll use this opportunity to just plug SmartLogic. You know, I've, I feel really great about the team that I have working for me here and our ability to solve a variety of problems using some of the best technologies that we've been able to procure and become experts at. So if you're interested in talking about a project that you're working on or an idea you have, or you have a team that could use some extra support or kind of take that project off your plate, you know, hit us up. Eric, do you have any final plugs or asks for the audience? Go check out XVenture at xventure.org or the new Kalevala at my GitHub, Ostrich slash C-A-L-E-V-A-L-A. Wait, starts with a C? Or K, yeah. Wow. I, I'm bad at spelling. Oh, man. <laughs> check check, check, the, so, check, check yeah. the show notes for links. Before we wrap the show, we have a special segment that we're testing out and you're about to hear. Pattern Matching with Todd, hosted by our friend and occasional co-host Todd Resedek. We've heard feedback that you all would like to learn more and get to know some of our guests better. Pattern matching is a segment dedicated to just that. Todd has five questions. He'll be asking a variety of special guests and we'll be sharing them throughout the season. Let us know what you think of this new segment. We'd love to hear from you. Okay. Now here's our first ever pattern matching with Todd. All right. Thank you for joining me today for this episode of pattern matching. My guest is the Leonardo da Vinci of embedded elixir. He's a member of the Nerves Core team, and he's known for creating some amazing, if not always practical, devices. Taking some time away from his duties at Binary Noggin, welcome Connor Rigby. Hello. Hi, Connor. Thanks for joining me today. So if you're not familiar with the segment, we have five questions for you. They're the same five questions for every guest, and the idea is just to get to know you a little bit better. So where were you born? I was born in Redding, California, a tiny little town on uh, the main highway in the States, way up north, not really where most people like to hang out. Oh, all right. Up in Humboldt or north uh, of Humboldt? About the same same level of northness as Humboldt, but inland, not on the coast, uh, right in the middle of the desert. Okay, cool. They've got some interesting industry up there. <laughs> yeah. So where do you live now? Now, I just recently, a couple of years ago, moved to about the middle of the state in a, a tiny town called Morro Bay, California. It's right on the one. If you ever if you ever drove the one from SF to LA, for example, you would have driven through it. It's right around near San Luis Obispo. Cool. So nice little beach town in nice the central, town. central coast. Yep. Cool. And you live up there with your significant other and a collection of cars and electronics from what I remember. Yeah, that's about right. All right. So how many cars do you have at your house right now? Right now, I, I'm down to two. That's oh. all I have at the moment. I, I've been selling them left and right. Okay. So what's the most number of cars you've had on your property in your life? Well, so usually I, I like to store them not on my property. Neighbors aren't usually super stoked with a bunch of broken cars. So 
<laughs> probably four at my last apartment. I had a one bedroom apartment with probably more car space internally than I had floor space of the apartment. Okay. So four cars. And I guess just to explain that a little bit, you're, I think you're into like autocross or are you just into working on cars or what? Yeah. A bit of autocross, a bit of on track racing. Wow. Not usually, not usually super picky. Don't do any off-road stuff though. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I think the last car I remember you buying was an old RX-7. Yep. Bright yellow one. I actually bought three of them all at once. Fixed one of them. Just sold okay. it not that long ago. Oh, okay. Very cool. So have you had any careers before programming? No real ones. I kind of went straight into programming right out of school. Okay, you're pretty young, right? Yeah, twenty. Three. Okay. So you went to, sorry, when you say out of school, do you mean like high school? I mean, school, out of high college? school. Yeah. I didn't, okay. I, I skipped out on college. Yeah. I was one of the six people who knew how to work a computer in Redding, California. So they were happy to, you know, give me a job doing that. Sweet. Yeah. Just, hey, if you can, I would say go for it. I try LeBron to tell everyone to if, if it works for you. Yeah, it works for LeBron, you know, you didn't waste <laughs> that eight months in college. So if you weren't a programmer, what do you think you'd be? I don't know. If I wasn't a programmer, I would probably just be a California beach bum. I don't have a ton of marketable skills outside of programming. Okay. So a uh, Lebowski type? Yeah. Nice. Lebowski, what a reference. <laughs> Well, hopefully everybody understands what I'm talking about. Get some imagery from that. If you don't, I'm sorry. You'll have to bing it. The Lebowski, the dude. The guy. The dude. Yes, the dude. Okay, cool. So what was the genre of the last song or album you listened to? Man, I answered this this morning and now I have to look again. I just listened to, let's see, I just listened to Aesop Rock's new album, which is a rap album. Okay. Okay. Let's go with what you said this morning. This morning, I, I usually start... Okay. So I start my day off with some sort of metal album. Usually I bounce between a lot of genres, but usually it starts with a metal album of some sort and it's progressively less intense as the day goes by. Okay. I don't do that actively. It just happens. Okay. So this is dear to my heart. So we talk about metal, like metal is composed of of it's, a, it's a wide of range subgenres. of genres. Yeah, so maybe, like, can you give me the subgenre or maybe be yeah, a, a little uh, bit I more guess, specific as to what kind of metal you're into? I guess a subgenre would be maybe post-hardcore punk, maybe. Depending okay. On, depending on how you want to classify it, where you want to draw the lines on the arbitrary rules. Stuff yeah. like A Day to Remember, maybe We Came as Romans. I'm trying to think of other, like, popular bands. Okay. Here, hold on. We'll, we'll pull up Spotify right now. We'll see what's on the queue. All their remains, they're pretty popular. Okay. Stuff like kind of in that general. Hopefully I just gave someone some, some new stuff to listen to. Yeah, awesome. Okay. I've been really getting into power metal lately. Oh, power metal is a, a bit high energy. Really? Okay. All right. That's cool to each his own, I guess. But the point is there's a lot of different kinds of metal. So there's you say you like metal... And then you tell somebody, yeah, like new metal. Yeah. Oh, and they'll be like, that's core the my favorite. Yeah. yeah. So just because two people like metal doesn't mean they have anything in common about music. I like music to keep taste. it vague because, 
not everyone wants to hear the minute differences between two different genres of metal. Yeah. Okay. I'm maybe one of the few, the few outside of Northern Europe, I guess, that's really into <laughs> oh, distinguishing yeah. the differences. I'm not going to go talking about metal in Northern Europe. It's Germans. Yeah. Is it Germans and, uh, and the Swedes? Oh, the Swedes there. They're on their own level of metal. Yeah. So I was talking to Eric Metals Johnson recently, who doesn't strike me as somebody who's particularly into metal, but I, me- I mentioned that I was going to see a band called Sabaton, which is from like a smaller city north of Stockholm. And he like immediately knew exactly who I was talking about. Amazing. So yeah, I think it's compulsory in the Swedish education yeah. system to at you least know. To, you have to at least know who they are. Yeah. I liken it to Brazilians, even if they're not into soccer, they still know way more about soccer than most people. Oh, correct. Yeah. Totally. Okay. Well, cool. So let's talk about your taste in in movies or TV shows. So let's say you're flipping through the channels. What's like one movie or TV show that you would stop and watch, you know, pretty much any time? Oh, man. So I don't watch a ton of TV or movies, but... If we're going for TV, basically anything anything animated. I love cartoons, uh, old Cartoon Network cartoons, even the real old, old like Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny, uh, Tom and Jerry, that stuff. If, if there's a cartoon on a TV, I will stop and watch it. As for movies, I, I don't watch a ton of movies. Probably if I had to pick one that I would watch no matter where I saw it, I would definitely sit down and watch Donnie Darko. It's just one of those stupidly over-the-top movies that... They went well out of their way to make it make no sense. And, you know, understanding it is up to the viewer. Okay. Yeah, that's one I haven't seen. My wife loves it. I don't know why, but I've literally just, I've never seen it. Jake Gyllenhaal can be a chore to view sometimes. Okay. Who's the director of that? I don't remember who directed it. Is it Aronofsky? It's like Darren Aronofsky or somebody. Let's see. Richard Kelly, who I I am unfamiliar with. I don't know what else he made. Oh, okay. Nothing good, it turns out, according to Google. Okay. Well, congratulations, Richard Kelly, for making one more good movie than I've made. (laughs) Okay, cool. And to wrap it up, let's talk about what project are you most excited about working on next? So either something you're working on now or something you're really excited to get started working on soon. So I've been working with Frank Hunlith on Wi-Fi meshing, and maybe no one else cares as much about this as I do, but I think it's just amazing. Basically, the idea that you don't need a central router to connect all of your Wi-Fi devices. So imagine you get home and there's no central router that your phone connects to get on your Wi-Fi network, but it just connects to whatever's closest, your light bulb, your refrigerator whatever ridiculous component that you have in your house connected to the internet. So we're working on adding support into that with NERVs right now. So your NERVs devices don't need to be configured to connect to a router to talk to each other. Say you have a local network of NERVs devices, you can configure them to just talk directly to each other. So right now I've got like a test bench in my house. I have a two-story house and there's a device upstairs that needs to talk to a device downstairs they cannot talk directly to each other because the distance is so great. But by putting one more of these devices in between them, they can now reach each other and all three of them can communicate with each other. So rather than the classic you know, client-server relationship that you might have in Wi-Fi, you get the meshing of it. Okay. Yeah, so I guess that reminds me of like the Z-Wave protocol. Similar. 
Okay. So you'd set up your nerves device to act as an access point as well as... Well, so it's actually part of the specification where Wi-Fi devices... So it's neither an access point or a client or infrastructure if you're into the actual terminology. It's a brand new mode, brand new as of 2016, I think, called mesh mode, where it doesn't actually act as a client or server. It kind of acts as both simultaneously, more of a node than a client or a server. And there's a, a lot of really complex routing and math that goes on under the, the, thank God, someone smarter than me figured out. Nice. And they somewhat documented it? Well, as much as anything in Linux is documented. <laughs> nice. Cool. So you'd have one nerves device that maybe reaches out to the internet, and then any other nerves device just needs to reach that one of those others. Or devices. any of the other ones. Right. So my, my test bench is I have one. There's one device connected to the internet. And by connecting that one device to the internet, my test bench of six other devices all mesh together. And as long as that one device that's connected to the internet is in the mesh, they all have internet. Nice. Well, cool. Well, thanks for joining me today, Connor. It was a real pleasure getting to, know you, getting to know you a little bit more. And hopefully we'll see you at a conference soon. If we're ever allowed to go in them again. Yes. Yes. Or a virtual conference. A virtual one, yeah. All right. Thank you. Well, that's it for another episode of Elixir Wizards. We are so glad to be back at you for season four on system and application architecture. My name is Justice Epen. I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Ostrich, and our Director of Development Operations at SmartLogic, Dan Ivovich. Elixir Wizards is a SmartLogic podcast here at SmartLogic. We're always looking to take on new projects building web apps in Elixir, Rails, and React. Infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, in case microservices isn't actually dead, and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project that we could help you with. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, so add us on all of those. You can find me personally online at Justice Epen and Eric at Eric Ostrich. And join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more application and system architecture.